This is Misinfo Weekly, a somewhat weekly program about misinformation in our time. Misinfo Weekly is a collaboration between the School of Complex Adaptive Systems, the School of Social and Behavioral Sciences, and the Unit for Data Science and Analytics at Arizona State University Library. Hello and welcome. Today is Friday, December 16th, and we're back. We're back talking about Twitter. Didn't we just talk about Twitter last week? We did just talk about Twitter. I I believe in the last episode, I think we were trying to have a cautious perspective about the future of the platform and not to rush to judgment about how much the platform was changing or rather what those changes would ultimately be. Namely, would it be a home for right-wing trolls in a more long-term way? And I think our perspective, if I if I remember, was was kind of twofold. One was it's too early to tell about the long term composition of the platform, um, and the other one though, and is that there's going to be some learning going on for for new Twitter CEO Elon Musk. It's been a week, maybe a little more. Sean, how are we doing with that? Well, I think we we're trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, but now now maybe we shouldn't. Hmm. You know, I, I still feel like it's too soon to tell about the long-term prospects for Twitter. I feel like now that also means we're not sure if there will be Twitter, but I, I still feel like we can kind of justify some, some patience here on the returns for what the long-term prospects of the platform are and, and continuing to preach, you know, people paying attention to those kinds of things. In terms of the learning that's going on for, for new CEO of Twitter, it feels like some learning has happened but learning in a maybe a different direction than maybe the benefit of the doubt would suggest. Maybe that's fair. I think the kind of two things we've seen happen, we've seen some additional accounts kind of open back up, right? They've been unsuspended. And some of those folks are people we've talked about before, like Roger Stone, for example, is now back on Twitter, which I find concerning, especially given his role in January 6th and a lot of election misinformation. And then we've seen the there's a Twitter account that tweeted out information about where Elon Musk's plane is at this moment in time or where it's going. So it basically consolidates some publicly available information about his plane. And there are other accounts about other famous people's planes. And that account has been suspended. And then anyone who mentions that account also seems to be suspended. Yeah. A lot of capricious decision-making has, has drawn a lot of people's attention. The, the, the rallying cry of freedom of speech doesn't really seem to hold up when, you know, even just scrolling Twitter this afternoon, it seems like journalists are getting kicked off of Twitter left and right. That doesn't seem like freedom of speech. And, you know, folks have, there's even an article in the Atlantic this week that basically alleges that Elon Musk is a right-wing activist. So I think people, people are doing a good job, I think, of paying attention to Musk and holding him accountable for a whole lot of hypocrisy and a whole lot of dysfunction. Well, but there's also a bit of a fascination with Musk, right? If we think about coverage of his companies and coverage of kind of the like myths that surround the companies that he's part of, that, you know, he's kind of solely responsible for the success of Tesla or the success of SpaceX, for example, there's a bit of like a a myth that's appeared. So we have an obsession with covering billionaires and and thinking of them as problem solvers. 
But, and so I think this is a continuation of that in some ways. We're just obsessed with what is Elon going to do next. I think if we had a, a different person in control of Twitter, the coverage might be different. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with that. And I think it speaks, to, it, this is a timely comment, I think, because just just yesterday, I believe, was when former President Donald Trump released his NFT trading cards. And, you know, the aesthetics of these trading cards just are kind of right in line with a, a kind of individual worship, this idea of a great man, a fascination with individual strength and genius that you know, when, when you read about fascism and some of the most important components of fascism, it's this idea that a person can represent a government in and of themselves. And, you know, the aesthetics of those trading cards remind me of some of our fascination with Elon Musk. You know, again, wanting to hold this person accountable is is one thing. But I think when you have people who have these high expectations for what he's capable of, it really paves over the the work and genius of the organizations themselves in 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 those accomplishments and it i think it does a whole lot of it it it, it grievously mistreats the the people who are part of the organizations and the teams that make things successful and i think you're seeing that in something like twitter where when those people are dismissed or overworked then the company starts becoming dysfunctional really really fast should we take about 10 seconds to, to you kind of unpack a little bit of what you said? Because you mentioned these NFT cards. For those that are not familiar, NFTs are what are known as non-fungible tokens. So they're kind of like unique digital identifiers for, you know, items, works of art, code. So basically people were buying digital versions of these cards that now kind of hold value. It's a bit like Bitcoin for art in a way. Yeah, these were collector's items kind of commemorating the life and career of 45th President Trump. I see a lot of parallels in in the kind of worship of the great man kind of embedded or, or just this idea that billionaires get a certain kind of credibility right now in our in our current society for certain audiences. That is is very, I think, leaves us in a very fragile position as it pertains to misinformation. Just because someone is rich doesn't mean we should we should listen to them. And I think the my pillow guy is a is a fine follow up piece of evidence for this claim. I mean, but we have a you know this is a there's a strong history and a strong tradition of trusting very wealthy people to control parts of society. I mean, it's it's the thing that we've done for since time began. But I take your point in that these outsiders coming in to a, a new field or a new area and believing that they, because they're wealthy or they are perceived to be successful somewhere else, then they can take that success and then change another space, right? So just because Musk has or may not have engineering prowess does not prepare him to run a social platform and understand content moderation and understand the complexities of that, right? Right. It's not just about code or tech development. It's an organization that has a number of different responsibilities and complex decisions to make. I think, you know, we were talking about this a little bit this afternoon, but I, I see some parallels with the Trump presidency and the Musk leadership of Twitter. And I think it, 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 brings, it brings us to something that is most concerning to me about what's happening with Twitter right now. That is, 
you know, Musk and Trump kind of come to power as outsiders, claiming that they'll clean things up and improve them because of their outsider status. And then one of the key moves that they make once they're in, in control is to use their power as a way to narrate and thereby, quote unquote, expose the corruption or dysfunction that preceded them. And so they use their power as a way to unmake the institution that they are in charge of. And for Twitter, that's a big problem. And we see that come out with something like the Twitter files. I think that's an interesting parallel, too, because, again, Trump had very little respect for the institutions of government and the complexities of governing. And I think Musk has similar feelings about all of Twitter's structures and institutions and even portions of the, the public, right? His, if you look, Twitter no longer has a media relations group. So when the media wants to ask questions or interface with Twitter, all that was shut down, just like Tesla and other places. Yeah, it turns out the United States of America is a more robust organization than Twitter. And, and that's why I say that it's especially what? bad okay. for Twitter you think maybe United States might not be as robust as Twitter or, or, or Twitter is, is still a robust company? Oh, I was just making a joke that I'm, I'm agreeing with you, but it's kind of a funny <laughs> comparison to make is why I was, why I, I tried to interrupt with a joke and that failed. <clears throat> well, I mean, let's just accept that the comparison is a little absurd and, and, and I'm okay with that. But, but I feel like, you know, when we, especially when we try to say that the institution was rotten and it's so good that we're here. You know, that that was something that we that was a familiar maneuver from the Trump administration. But there were all kinds of kind of intersecting organizations and professionals that pre prevented that from becoming something that completely dissolved the United States. Many would argue that we came close. But but with Twitter, to me, I know we're talking about the future of Twitter. And I think that's a worthy subject, right? Who who am I to say that it's not? But but I think re-narrating what Twitter was is a devious thing that's happening right now. And this idea that's coming out in the Twitter files, right? This multi-part release that's on Twitter where Musk is working with specific journalists to try to tell these tales about how capricious or biased Twitter was in their prime is providing all kinds of fodder for extremely right-wing politicians and public figures to, you know, make claims about, say, you know, terminating the Constitution. Well, but this is similar to, you know, right before the election, the summer for the election, right? Summer of 2020, whenever we had this sort of pseudo mass exodus from Twitter and Facebook and other mainstream platforms to alt-right platforms like Parler, as we've talked about, where they're saying we're being censored. Our freedom of speech on these mainstream platforms, conservatives are being censored, so we should move over, which they may have created accounts on Parler and Gab and Gitter, but they never really left Twitter and Facebook, which is a bit of an irony. So I think there is a similar rewriting that's happening you know, with the Twitter files. But if you look at the evidence, the evidence is, again, the opposite. There, you know, It's imperfect, but there are discussions of... Do we remove content? Do we remove users? What does that mean? What are the costs to society? What are the costs to, to companies? I mean, the story is, it's really complicated. I mean, I think that the story that shocked me the most is not the Twitter files. It's the whistleblower about the lack of security in Twitter's infrastructure. That's the thing that's blown my mind. 
but yeah, the Twitter so- files and censorship, that seems like a kind of regurgitation of a narrative that we saw pretty strongly around, you know, June of 2020. Yeah, that this this maneuver of the Twitter files, right, to catch people up who aren't as familiar with the Twitter files is, is Musk kind of sharing or making available to folks these internal communications as Twitter struggled with various content moderation and censorship issues. We'll say content moderation, right? But I mean, all of this is meant to be grist for the mill for him. And that see, look at how restrictive this was. There was no freedom of speech. Now there will be freedom of speech. Look at all this dirty laundry this company accumulated. And I feel like you have to have the most unfriendly, hostile reading perspective of these materials to think that this was a conspiracy rather than an organization struggling with difficult with a difficult situation. I that's I totally agree with you. I think that and and you know, Musk is being kind of put through the ringer with the media, but I think deservedly so, because he said, well, we should have free speech on the platform as long as it's not illegal. And then now look at free speech. It's not illegal to post publicly available information about the location of his plane. And look, there's mass banning and suspension of accounts. And that goes exactly against what he said. Yeah. And, and it's this, it, it's the callback to the summer of 2020 that concerns me the most in that people talk about the big lie, the, the big lie as in that the 2020 election was stolen from President Trump. But I feel like there's, a, there's, a, a, there's an accessory lie here that the Twitter files saga really shores up. And that's the idea that social media is so biased against conservatives that it is impossible to have a free and fair election. Not that there are content moderation decisions, not that a private company might have political predilections, right? That's not the allegation here. The allegation is all of those things and it is so egregious that it is impossible to have a free and fair election. And it is that extra hurdle that people were on board with in the summer of 2020. And it is that extra hurdle that these Twitter files are kind of bringing out and then trying to recast the history of Twitter in those terms. That is incredibly dangerous as the spring or as January of 2021 taught us. Well, that also becomes even more fodder for folks like Kerry Lake and Mark Fincham in Arizona as their claims that the election was stolen. They have a series of lawsuits saying that the election was stolen against them. So they are continuing to propagate that. So I think that's, that's where this connects with mis and disinformation. It's not necessarily just a conversation about, you know, Elon Musk that we want to continue to have. I think it's that this becomes an environment where those, those conspiracy theories and those narratives are not only just allowed to spread, but whether intentionally or unintentionally, Elon Musk is connecting into them and supporting them. It's yeah. And here's absolutely. And this is the most insidious part of, of what, of what is happening now. And that is, Now, if someone is on a social media platform and they say, I want freedom of speech, there's a chance that they really care about the Constitution or something. I don't know. But what it probably means and that they are importing into the conversation by waving the flag of of freedom of speech is shoring up this idea that social media platforms are rigged against a a fair conversation. 
and against the good of public discourse, right? So by, by invoking this idea of free speech, we're actually making a tacit allegation. And I think sometimes people don't appreciate exactly how toxic that allegation is and how conspiratorial that allegation needs to be in order for you to look at something like the Twitter files and say, Twitter interfered with the election. Our country is in a state of emergency as a result, which the former president, you know, famously at this point communicated about when some of these first revelations were coming out. So would it be fair to say that this idea of freedom of speech has become a bit of a dog whistle to stop this deal? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a very succinct way of putting it. It's it's now, you know, there's a, a history of this, right? We use seemingly non-threatening language. We use, you know, seeming language that can fit in many conversations and then by its use by these specific folks then becomes a kind of a pointer to this conspiracy theory. Yeah. I'm thinking of Gamergate where, you know, similar kinds of, you know, so-called values were just used as license to abuse, abuse people online and, and basically ruin their lives. So if we add all of this up, then, you know, we have these, this change of sort of Musk stance from, quote unquote, extreme free speech, you know, quote, meaning that free speech is anything that is not illegal to his recent activities where he's banning accounts for technically legal speech that's tracking him in his plane, right? So what does that mean for the kind of future of Twitter and potentially for an environment that, you know, allows mis and disinformation to grow, right? We have another election coming in, well, two years. You know, it, it strikes me that this is a symptom of, of something that is really important for thinking about misinformation studies. And that is there, the capriciousness of a very small group of people is now having these huge effects on large conversations taking place in, in public. And I realize that's not officially public. But happening happening out in, in kind of well exposed social media platforms, that that somebody's capriciousness and decision making is having these completely asymmetrical, completely profound effects on the ways that people communicate. And, and I, I I think this is a condition where if we're going to do this, such that Twitter is a cult of personality, then it's going to contribute to political polarization more so than say platforms have contributed to political polarization in the past. Because now your opinions about Elon Musk and his policies and his politics are now going to be kind of a shibboleth on Twitter. Well, and the other issue is at this moment in time, you know, where do we go for the kinds of conversations, the kinds of like public conversations and sort of influencer conversations and such that happened on Twitter? There's not a place for us to like quickly move to and move those conversations. So we're kind of stuck in the, in the middle. You know, a lot of folks, well, the Mastodon account, you know, Mastodon being a sort of open source social network that's been touted as a bit of a Twitter replacement, which it's not, right? I mean, it's, it's different. It's much more difficult to use in some ways. You know, there are other kind of limitations, but ironically enough, the Mastodon Twitter account was also banned because you tweeted out information about the account, you know, the, the plane tracking account. So I guess going back to the, you know, the issue here, we don't really have a replacement. We're kind of stuck with Twitter at this moment in time, aren't we? A little bit, although I think it's, you know, if we're wanting to gain anything out of the situation, realizing that Twitter was never 
never lived up to its own ideals, I think is fair criticism. Yeah. I think it got, you know, it was the closest thing, but, you know, Sarah Morrison wrote about this for Vox that, you know, our, our expectations for the future should not be limited by whatever Twitter was able to accomplish in the past. And that, you know, the idea of an accessible public conversation through social media should be something to strive for. But Twitter is is really kind of a draft at this approach, and it, it shouldn't just be our ideals. Now, certainly what we don't want is, is, is where we are now, which is, you know, capricious leadership, polarizing personalities, having all the control, right? We're tracking some of the activity on the other platforms like Gab and Getter and Parler. You, you know, Musk's mentions on Twitter are going down, right? He's, it's not like he, he has the same hold on a lot of these conversations that he did even a month ago. And so while he is kind of consistently performing and trying to get attention and trying to make himself a lightning rod around kind of polarizing political issues, the uptake by and large on some of these other platforms, some of these other alt tech venues is, is gradually decreasing, I would say, if, 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 if I had to say today, right now, obviously something could change in the future, but he's never achieved the notoriety that he did a few, that he did maybe six weeks ago. He, ha- he hasn't achieved that yet again. But I think like a greater issue in my mind is that he's the sole arbitrator of policy on the platform now. Like, you know, so the quote unquote buck stops with him in a way that, you know, he said he's making the decisions about big decisions about moderation, content moderation, account deletion, suspension, et cetera. And so that's a, a bit of an environment that, you know, becomes less predictable, right? There's not a set of rules to follow to say, this is what's allowed. This isn't what is allowed. Now it's whatever kind of tickles his fancy and with respect to account suspension or content moderation. Yeah. I think it really drives home the point that if we want resistance to misinformation, if we want capacities to make sure that we are not constantly destabilized by, by different kinds of ideological conflict, then organizations that traffic information and that support vital communications cannot be run like a dictatorship. Right. We need some sense of stability. And this is not to say that, you know, pre-Musk Twitter was a bastion of, you know, doing the right thing with respect to content moderation or that content moderation is the, the primary solution, you know, the perfect solution to the problem. It's, concerning that folks who have been removed from the platform for, you know, peddling and mis and disinformation and hate speech have now been welcomed back to the platform. And that's just because Musk decided that that's what he wanted to do, not because there was some process that was followed that I think becomes really problematic for the future too. Yeah. There's like a sorcerer's apprentice dimension to all of this where, you know, suddenly he's just overwhelmed by dancing brooms and, has completely lost control. Yeah, and there's there's kind of nothing. I mean, you know, or you know, people have this countdown clock, right? You know, it's like the Liz Truss, you know, or lettuce sort of situation. People are like, you know, Musk or lettuce, right? Which will survive longer? But I think Twitter is a bit ingrained in society at this moment in time. So if there is a demise then that's going to take quite a while for that demise to kind of fully to realize and for, you know, the systems to deteriorate, you know, so I think those that are saying, you know, Twitter will be disappeared in a couple of days. That's, that's hasn't come true. 
but it definitely has become a more toxic place and a place that's more friendly to mis and disinformation. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, and as it, as important as it is to hold specific individuals accountable, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that if we didn't lionize billionaires, you know, the, these are other kinds of issues that, that predate Musk, right? That we, there are other issues, there are other structural problems that we want to continue to pay attention to and that, that we want to try to fix at some point if we want to get out of this, right? But lionizing billionaires is a great way to, you know, basically find the 21st century version of a dictator where we give them all the power, believe their genius has no end, are totally comfortable with them making impulsive decisions because we think that really smart entrepreneurs behave in that way. And conflating those two registers, entrepreneurship and governance is you know a nice backdoor to get to some really volatile, capricious, and divisive behavior that is supercharged by whatever institution they're in charge of. So you too, for $44 billion, can sort of agenda set for the United States and large portions of the world, right? Yeah, that $99 POTUS 45 trading card seems really cheap now by comparison. <laughs> it sure does, but only will go up in value, right? Who knows? Who knows? The, but I also think that, that what you're saying here about this sort of belief that we just make kind of capricious decisions, you know, use these gut feelings, right? That rhetoric will then be harnessed in ways to say that, you know, the government's ineffective, the institutions are government, of government is ineffective because they don't operate in those same ways. And this, you know, acting like a, a billionaire lion, right? That's, that's the way forward and that solves these problems. So therefore institutions that don't act that way are antiquated, ineffective, and don't serve the people. And don't forget corrupt because the more institutionally complex, then we just read that as corrupt, right? Our conspiratorial lens says, well, that's just corrupt and we just need to purge all that out. Well, it turns out maybe that's a bad idea. Yeah, well, speed becomes a proxy for effectiveness. Yes, yeah. And I think that's- Deliberation, right? The deliberation, trying to understand the needs of a community, all those things, those are not efficient processes most of the time. So therefore- Let's not do those things anymore. Let's now be capricious and, you know, kind of move with our gut feelings. This seems like a great way to end right before the holidays. All I want for Christmas is for people to understand that content moderation is never a straightforward issue. And anyone trying to represent to you that it is super simple is probably not in touch with reality or has something terrible up their sleeve. I want that for Christmas. I mean, that sounds good. Maybe I'll have a conversation with Santa. You know, maybe Justice has some connections that we can utilize for bringing the gift of content moderation to everyone's holidays. Yeah. Well, I think on that note, it's time to end. Thanks for joining us. Have a wonderful holiday. Be thoughtful and be well.